20% of same-sex couples are raising adopted children compared to just 3% of different-sex couples. And 3% of same-sex couples have foster children compared to 0.4% of different-sex couples. As we've learned in episodes 129 and 130 of the Queer Money Podcast, foster children, as a group, are more likely to have special needs. So how do LGBTQ parents prepare financially to adopt children with special needs? How do they save for their own retirement and possibly prepare their children financially for life after they've left? That's what we're talking about on today's Queer Money with Manodi Rajput of Secure Planning Strategies. Manodi's smart. <laughs> She's a certified financial planner and chartered special needs consultant with an MBA in finance and over 30 years of experience in financial planning. Manodi is a nationally recognized expert on planning for families with special needs family members. She is dedicated to finding the right ways for those families to plan and provide lifelong care for their loved ones. Before we start, and many of you have been waiting for this, this episode of Queer Money is being brought to you by the Debt Free Guys Credit Card Payoff Course which is only open to new members for a short time starting Sunday, May 12th, 2019. Yes, Mother's Day. The credit card payoff course is our proven step-by-step -step strategy to help you break free of all your credit card debt. No confusion, no whatabouts, no what-ifs, no WTFs. Current members are doing phenomenal and giving the credit card payoff course amazing reviews. We'll be featuring some of those very same people on this Queer Money podcast in the near future. In the meantime, go to debtfreeguys.com forward slash debtfree2019 for more information. Many people were disappointed when the doors closed last time and they couldn't actually get into the course and sign up. Don't let that be you this time. Now, on with the show. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. So hi, Minoti. Welcome to Queer Money. We're excited to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here as well. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. We are actually recording this particular episode in December, which follows two actual podcasts we had on Queer Money talking about LGBT adoption and LGBT foster care. Uh, this episode won't be airing until April, but this is a sequence of episodes. So this is a great follow-up to those particular episodes. Just to give some context to our audience, you're a certified financial planner and a chartered special needs consultant. What is a chartered special needs consultant, please? <laughs> The Charter Special Needs Consultant is a relative new designation created by the American College in Pennsylvania. That is an institution that has provided many designations related to the insurance and financial service industry, looking at the demand of the need for specialists to assist families in their special needs planning they developed the curriculum and the only entity that I know of of any reputation that trains through academics, certified financial planners or chartered financial consultants to specialize and have trained academically uh, in the special needs planning arena through this designation. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. So I think audience who may not necessarily be familiar with the need to have these sort of specialties in financial planning, why is such a specialty important for families with children who have special needs? The reason it's very important to have designation because there is so much to learn about special needs planning, not just about the government benefits, but it's coordinated with the right kind of estate and financial planning. But the planners themselves bring additional aspects, the empathy, sympathy, compassion. But the fundamental is still the knowledge 
that they can impart for the families and putting their plan together. So where can they go to get the basic information? The designation provider has a lot of information that one can learn from, and then they can just learn through more years of experience. So a proper education is very important. Absolutely. I think it's, I think it's great to know. I think oftentimes uh, LGBT families are open to the idea of adoption, including children from foster care. And they think about what the, the challenges will be with taking care of the child physically and emotionally. But very often, I don't think we think about the financial planning. Um, and it's not just financial planning for being able to take care of the child while the parent is around, but it's sometimes conditional for taking care of the child after the parent might have passed away and also preparing the parent for retirement as they're trying to take care of planning for their their, their child's financial future, right? <laughs> Agreed, yes. Yeah. So you formed your firm, Secure Planning Strategies, uh, in 1989, um, and you offer comprehensive wealth planning with specialty for life planning with financial and legal guidance for families with special needs. Exactly what we just talked about. What inspires you to focus on this area of financial planning as opposed to the numerous other areas you could focus on? I began in the financial service industry within a few months of coming to United States from India. I came well qualified. I had an MBA in finance. I had banking experience. But what I wanted to do, which was related to and similar to what I was doing in India, uh, that hadn't quite developed in the United States, which was uh, through the banking, uh, doing planning for the small business owners. And I found that initial stages in my work life here is that very few women were in the financial service industry. And the banks were really not involved that much in financial planning. One thing led to the other. I began my career with insurance industry and then later on got all my licenses for securities and got my CFP designation within six years of starting. And in 10 years, through sheer determination and courage, I developed a decent practice, but I kept thinking that I wanted to add a component that brought a different level of emotional satisfaction to me. And I kept thinking, what specialty could that be? Should I work with women, widows, small business owners? And then in 1989, three different families came to me, one a month for just their regular planning. And during fact-finding, I discovered that each one of them had an adult child with special needs. One family had a paranoid schizophrenia, um, schizophrenic adult son. Another one had the cerebral palsy with cognitive impairment. And the third one had uh, another specialty with um, disability. And none of them had any clues what they were going to do about their caregiving of the child when they pass away. And that brought to my attention. My niece in England had autism. And that was always on the back of my mind. And so I connected the dots and I felt that this was a sign that I needed to do something in this area. So one thing led to the other. This was, of course, uh, nearly 30 years ago, before the internet, before the Google. How do you <laughs> collect all the data and information? Because there was nobody who was doing that in my area. There were three attorneys who were drafting legal documents for these families for special needs trust, but there was no comprehensive financial planning. So I became the first advisor in the state of Michigan to start special needs planning in a comprehensive way. 
I have to say, uh, it's great hearing your story that you said, how can I do what I'm doing right now, but do it in a more meaningful way? Because I think that's what brings the value to or the passion to a lot of things that many people kind of think are mundane, right? That, you know, the, the idea of being a financial planner, I think some people a lot of people, I think, probably think, oh, that's numbers and yawn. It's That's kind of boring. But you're saying that there's, the, you know, I want to specialize in this particular aspect of it because not only is it interesting for me, but I also see some sort of value that I can give back to this special group of people. You're right, because it's a combination of many things. And what I discovered that During the process of building this specialty, I met so many people who, you know, it it unfolded over a period of time that it was really a silent population. What their worries were, what their fears were, what their challenges were, uh, nobody talked about it. They were alienated. They were silent in a corner. In the initial years when I met the families, a lot of them did not want to talk about it because of the stigma associated with that. And so they kept all of those issues in their in their mind, in their families, and how the other siblings of the special needs children or their other children suffered. And it made me a better human being and a counselor for them to really speak out what their concerns were, it was more than just financial planning and planning for the future of their special needs child. It was like taking care of the entire planning. That's why I call my planning special needs, but also life planning matters. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. I, I, I will have to say in some ways it does parallel maybe some of the experiences that individuals in the LGBT community have had in working with financial advisors, they may have been scared to or uncomfortable or unsure about telling a financial advisor that they are a queer person, that they have a husband or a wife or a a partner for fear of being judged, right? So I think that these families probably in some ways kind of felt the same thing, that they they were... in fear of being judged or like you said, the stigma, but without that information, and you know, I'm speaking to all of you who are listening, this is the important reason why so many of us need to be out to our financial advisors. Without that piece of information, you can't give life planning or financial planning that's right. You're not going to be able to give a full proper assessment. So I have done a fair amount of work with the LGBT community. And the first time I ever did the planning almost 15 years ago, And I remember that first couple referred us to many other friends and people they knew. But I distinctly remember one person telling me that they felt more comfortable talking to us because we are used to dealing with people who are unique and different and that they have suffered in some way or the other or they have felt stigmatized so that we would understand, me and my partners would understand how it feels that way, and we will be able to be more compassionate towards their causes. Yeah, absolutely. I I think all of us, no matter who we are, we want to be certain that 
our needs are being taken care of and that we're being heard. And so we don't want to be just put into some box that some of the larger investment firms may be used to putting people into, right? They, that they just say, okay, so you're this age and you're this number of years away from retirement and you make this amount of money. So this is what we're going to do for you. And all of the, everything else is kind of forgotten sometimes. Yeah, so. I think the, the organizations like the Financial Planning Association and there is more and more written about the softer side of doing business in this tough number crunching type of uh, uh, environment or the business that we are in. But in general, whether you are from the LGBT community or whether you are parents of special needs or you are a woman in transition, a widow or divorce or a retired person, money brings in a lot of emotions. So when you already have so many other things in your baggage and so on, money issues just compounds the challenges. So you need every financial planner. You have to have the ability to counsel people and make the financial matters seem more approachable and easy in addition to what your what your issues are on your day-to-day basis. Absolutely. I agree. So let's get back to the topic at hand, Mr. Alton Schneider. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> quit distracting us. So, um, Minotti, would you please, just so we have a baseline for this conversation, what would be the definition of a child with special needs? Is there a sort of a, a broad or general definition that you have? I would say for our planning purposes, a special needs individual could be somebody who will not be completely emancipated and may not be able to be independent and take care of themselves financially or otherwise. Now, having said that, there are so many degrees of that, that it will not be fair to just conclude it in this two sentences definition of special needs, because further talking about that, we divide this classification in three different categories. There is the cognitive impairment, the developmental disability people, people who are born with some kind of uh, disability that we know that you can pretty much predict that this is not going to change, such as Down syndrome. Autism is very much spoken uh, these days about, but the child is not, you don't see them to have autism from the day they are born like a Down syndrome person. But pretty much within the first few years, you can say, but then there are others such as the Angelman syndrome, the Williams syndrome, or just uh, retardation in general they all fall under the developmental disability category. Then the other side is the mental illness, which is you will not know for many years maybe that a person has a diagnosis of schizophrenia or manic depression or schizoaffective disorder. These people manage to look often very normal. They just have a lot of odd behaviors or emotional challenges that despite having a high IQ or being able to do many things normally, their emotional challenges, they don't allow them to necessarily be completely independent. They may not be able to stick to a job. They have a lot of other symptoms. They, they are on medication. And then between those two categories are other people who may have been born completely normal, but for various reasons, whether they were in a car accident and had traumatic brain injury, or they may have had a, another accident where they may have physical disability, although they may be mentally okay. And so having started a normal life, they become dependent and they have to be taken care of 
in their day-to-day needs as well as the planning for their future falls under the category of special needs people. So I, I have a feeling you must have been a doctor in a past life. <laughs> well, I tell you, I come from a family of physicians and chose not to be surprisingly. That's one thing that I did a lot in my initial first few years of learning to be a specialist in special needs planning, learning about the various disabilities, going to the library and understand what Angelman syndrome means, or sit down with pediatricians or psychiatrists to find out what medications are prescribed for which kind of behavior. Uh, why do people hear voices? Why can't they sleep? Why are they, are they pacing? Why does a manic depression person spend so much money all the time? Things like that uh, initially was hard to take it all, but then gradually it became second nature to know what's going on in this family. That's <laughs> it. Just so shows how much you care, right? That that you've taken the time to find out that kind of information. Because when someone does mention something to most of us, when someone mentions a particular illness or disability, many of us cannot understand at all what that means. And you have to investigate that because it could affect how they have to plan financially. And I think that's probably why you have the three different degrees, right? Uh, yeah. And then, you know, what else happens is that I discovered another thing that the parents are not going to tell me everything. I have to know how to ask it to get things out of there because they don't know what's pertinent if for a planner to recognize what their needs are based upon what the challenges that they experience. So I said, you know, you have to have as an advisor, the empathy, the compassion. But I felt that I had to master the art of fact-finding to get the most from the parents. Gotcha. Thank, Thank you very you. much. I want to read this verbatim. It's a quote from the Williams Institute of UCLA. I want to read it verbatim because I want to make sure I don't mess it up. But 20% of same-sex couples are raising adopted children compared to just 3% of different-sex couples. And 3% of same-sex couples have foster children compared to 0.4% of different-sex couples. And we know from, as I said earlier, from episodes 129 and 130, more um, foster care children tend to have more challenges. Not always disabilities, but tend to have more challenges. And that can come with carrying various degrees of financial challenges. So to kind of kick off the discussion, I guess, how can LGBTQ families prepare emotionally and financially for such circumstances? Where does one even begin? Well, I've done a fair amount of planning for clients of the same sex. And now that many of them are married, they have gone ahead and had children of their own but also have adopted. I have two clients now. They adopted children, and one couple had adopted children from Kazakhstan, and only to discover that the nine-month-old baby that they got home, who looked beautiful, although she looked like troubled and uncared for where she came from, and they poured their hearts and, and love and money and everything. And today, when she is in her early 20s, their life has been nothing but challenge. So sometimes after they have adopted a child, whether it's from another country or whether it's foster care from here, some couples recognize that children who are in foster care may have scars that are very deep that probably is part of their personality. And some kids may have cognitive impairment or learning disability. And some parents are prepared to adopt them despite knowing 
that this child will have or has special needs. And some parents are unprepared and are surprised when they find out, oh my gosh, what happened? We are prepared to love this child, but are we prepared really as to what it requires on a day-to-day basis in dealing with the caregiving and lack of ability for the child to be educated the way one would expect in a normal situation, in a neurotypical situation? And now, how do we plan for the caregiving in the future when we have to care for ourselves? So all of this becomes very confusing and the parents often can go into depression or they are really frustrated. So they have it takes them a while to sort things out in order to prepare for themselves to take care of the child before they get older and then plan for their future one step at a time. Gotcha. I think there's a lot there that I think is very poignant. But the one thing that I never even thought about myself was if a parent finds out that they have a child with special needs, surprisingly, you know, they didn't go into it prepared for that, they could possibly then also suffer their own level of depression, which could exacerbate whatever the challenges are that they're dealing with to begin with. Yes. So where would one even start? The only thing that I'm, only conclusion I'm coming to is whether I know going into the adoption process or I'm surprised, or I find out after the fact that we have a child with special needs. The first step that I'm coming up with is, aside from Google, of course, is, I guess, talking with a financial planner. Uh, Yes and no. First of all, it depends upon what stage of life they are in. Just like most other families, whether they are from the LGBT community or otherwise, it takes them a long time to really accept and recognize that this is not going to go away. And then they're dealing with a lot of day-to-day challenges about, well, we both have to go to work. Who's going to pick up my child who cannot unlock the door and get in himself or herself or has special dietary restrictions or I need a babysitter after work or somebody to drop the school or who is going to be dealing with the teachers who are in the special ed program as to what the needs are. So it takes a long time because they are not thinking at that moment what's going to happen to the child when they are no longer here. That comes much later. But then what happens is if it is a special needs child, as the child grows, depending upon the state that you live in, the child is not going to be in school forever. The federal government mandates special education until 21 or 22. So the most states kind of mimic that and say, by the time your child is 21 or 22, has to leave school. Before that comes, at the age of 18, the child may qualify for government benefits, but there are certain rules. There has to be an established disability, and then the child is not allowed to have an assets of more than $2,000 in their name. All of this around the ages of 16 to 18, when the parents start to recognize, oh my gosh, the child will be leaving school, may become eligible for government benefits, and I really don't know much about it. Where do I go? Who do I go to? Just because they know that there is legal and financial planning needed, they cannot knock on any door that has a sign of XYZ CFP financial planner or an attorney with a JD designation. There are people who specialize in this area. And trust me, in the entire country, there aren't enough financial planners who have dedicated their practice to special needs planning. 
you have to really look for them and find out what their experience is. But it is around age 16 and above that people have to start thinking about this seriously because in high school, at the age of 16 in the special ed, they have what we call transition coordinating, which is where the school programs will allow or educate the parents and the child to be prepared for the world outside. And that's when the parents really start to come together in terms of their planning matters. I have to do planning for my child's future. But by the way, by the time my child is 18, 20 years old, all of a sudden I'm 50 years old. And now I have to start worrying about my future. And it's suddenly it's overwhelming and they have to put it all together and work with people who not only will know the parents' planning, but also will have to do the planning for the child. It almost seems to me very late by the time the child is 16 or 18 years old. Um, you know, but if that's you're 50- actually, yeah, that's about the time most people recognize. Now, people like me who specialize this, we are constantly holding workshops through various organizations and try to catch the parents early on. But that doesn't mean they have the ability. They may go ahead and do their legal planning and then protect the child so that they don't disqualify from the government benefits by their inadvertently done planning. But the fact that they need to provide for the child's future, they cannot do that right in the beginning. Because when the parents are young, they don't have a whole lot of assets. Their protection for the child is buying term life insurance and telling the parents, their own parents, like grandparents, as to what they can and cannot do, if they can help or not help. So this is not a one-time planning thing. You can start early on if you're prepared and if you have met the right people, you can do the base plan. But this is work in progress. You're never done. You can continue to do this and make amendments as things change. Yeah, that makes sense. Having yeah, to having to course correct on a regular basis because new information is probably being made available on a regular basis, or you just start to understand the specific needs of your child. And the laws change. Oh, that's true. Planning laws could change too. Estate planning laws could change, and economic changes take place. People lose jobs. People have to dip into their savings. The child may have an illness. A lot of those combination of things. Right. So maybe you could just talk to us a little bit about what some of the particular investing nuances are for couples like this. So if I'm an LGBT couple and I do have a child with special needs, what are some of the things that I can do right now to maybe make myself a little bit better prepared for having a conversation with someone like you or maybe the do's and don'ts? (laughs) Well, number one is I always advise people that your financial planning should come first before you go ahead and do your legal documents, the trust and wills and so on. The reason is if you do the legal documents first and then your financial planning doesn't quite support what you had already planned to do through your legal documents, you may have to go ahead and amend the documents. So the basic financial planning that is required is number one is you want to make sure that in the event of either partner's death, the surviving partner has the financial freedom to raise the child with the special needs and take care of themselves. So there is a uh, there is a calculation done. What is your current income? How much do you spend to live comfortably? And of that amount that you earn or spend, 
what percentage is being spent to take care of the special needs child because of special diet, medications, or therapies that are not covered. And then you go into how much life insurance do you have? Uh, in the event of one spouse's death or partner's death, what income sources will the surviving partner have? How much is Social Security going to be available? If that person who is the caregiver, the surviving caregiver, uh, has never worked, what kind of Social Security they build for the future? Does the deceased partner have enough group life insurance? Is there a retirement plan? What are the assets available for the surviving partner? You do that calculation both ways. If the caregiving partner is a stay-home mom or dad, then in the event of that person's death, who is going to be providing the care? What is the cost of hiring somebody to take care? You do that basic calculation first and find out if there is any gap in the income needed versus income available. Where would that income come from? The least expensive solution is to increase your term insurance that will be available for the next 20, 25 years until the parents retire. Then you go ahead and continue to do all of your retirement planning, investment planning. Maybe there are other children in the family, their college education. You want to make sure that your home someday will be paid up. So then if you are taken care of as a survivor, and your child is taken care of, when will your special needs child really need the money? When both parents pass away. So 90% of the special needs trusts are funded by a life insurance, not term, but permanent life insurance on both parents. It's called second to die policy, where the death benefit is available when both parents pass away. And the beneficiary is the trust that you have created to hold the assets for the special needs child. And the language in that trust says that the assets, the income and principle of this trust is going to supplement any government benefits that the child receives, but not replace it. So while you do all this basic planning, acquire a life insurance in for the trust then you go ahead and tweak your own investment strategies for the 401k retirement plan and do the very best you can. If your planning doesn't have an identifiable asset that's going to be available for the special needs trust, then your estate planning probably says when we both pass away, whatever is left is going to go for our child's special needs trust. That we find risky because there is no way of knowing how much is going to be left in the estate by the time the parents both pass away. Because today the biggest concern is people are living longer and they are going to need all of their savings for their own selves. So we need the government benefits. We need parents planning and they kind of partner with the government programs. You cannot do a planning without the government benefits, but the government benefits alone will never be enough to maintain the quality of life of your child. So whenever they are ready, depending upon the age of the child, depending upon the age of the parents, you start with the base plan 
and you continue to add and amend your plan as you move forward. Gotcha. Yeah. That is fabulous. That's what I was looking yeah, for. Thank you so exactly. much. That was, I agree. It was a great high level kind of overview. You mentioned something about this idea of having to partner with the government when it comes to, to government benefits and the money that special needs trust would have. And you also mentioned something earlier about this idea that they can't have more than $2,000 saved. Yes. Maybe, can you get, just explain that a little bit more? Uh, and the, part of the reason why I, I'm asking for that is John and I are aware of this because of the idea of someone being disabled. So individuals in our community may have become disabled. And we have talked about this, but I think it's this is kind of a different perspective of talking about this from the idea of a child who cannot support themselves. So maybe explain this whole idea of the $2,000. Yeah, so this session is going to be 30 years of experience and all the knowledge, including the book that I have written condensed in a 45-minute interview. So bear with me if I talk fast on this matter, but every child who has been diagnosed to have a disability prior to reaching age 18 at the age of 18 qualifies for SSI, Supplemental Security Income. But there's a qualification requirement they have to have an established disability as well as an asset test. They cannot own more than $2,000 under their social security number in order for them to qualify for SSI. They can have a few things such as personal things, uh, their computers and their video games and other things. They can own also a car if they're able to drive. They can own a prepaid funeral service, a burial plot, and a life insurance on their lives that has a cash value. But the total of those three items cannot be more than a, a certain amount, something like 5000 or so. They can own a home of their own, but then what is allowed legally may not always be practical because if a child owns their own home and down the road, somebody feels that this is not an appropriate home, too expensive or not able to maintain it and they sell it, the proceeds of the sale comes in the name of the child and that's more than $2,000. So there are other ways to plan better for that. Now, this child who has been receiving SSI, which is in the form of a monthly check, today it's about $770 per month, comes hand in hand with Medicaid. Medicaid is the welfare program. You have to be poor in order to qualify for that. That's why they cannot have more than $2,000 under their name. Why would one want to qualify for Medicaid? because Medicaid is the best insurance money cannot buy. It pays for a lot of things. <laughs> I, unfortunately, it's sad we're laughing at that, but it's so true. that it, it, is. it is, yes. It pays for a lot of things, such as future residential possibilities. Group homes are not something that Medicaid favors anymore, but that still is a residential option for them. Caregiving, supported employment, training, transportation, respites, and medication, there is no dollar value put there. So you just have to qualify for that. Now, when the parents of the child who has SSI Medicaid, they become disabled or they pass away or they retire and qualify for Social Security themselves, then the federal government and state government come together and say that now we have to take care of this child together because up until now, 
The SSI and Medicaid is federal money, but managed by the respective state that you live in. So the parents who have paid into the FICA system, Social Security tax, now their child will get a percentage of the what they qualify for SS Social Security. That's entitlement. And SSI is not an entitlement. It requires qualification. Now, the Social Security, which is based on the parents' FICA taxes, doesn't have the restriction how much a child can own in order to qualify for that amount because it's often 50% of the parents' Social Security. And that comes hand-in-hand with Medicare, which every 65-year-old person is eligible for. However, Medicare does not pay for any of the things that Medicaid pays for. And you definitely need all the things that Medicaid pays for, as a result of which you just have a rule of thumb. You have a child with disability that's going to need or is in need or collecting already uh, SSI Medicaid. You have general rule, no more than $2,000, but also close all of the traps where the child could inadvertently receive more than $2,000, such as you have to tell the grandparents, single siblings or uncles and aunts that out of your love, please don't include my child in your planning. Yeah, that's unfortunate that that's, <laughs> that's the way it I is. Mean, they, but it makes they can sense, do it yeah. a different way, right. but not include my child directly. Right in your 401k beneficiary or group life beneficiary or out of your love in your wills and trusts, just because you think that my child is going to need, you could jeopardize my planning. That's unfortunate, but it makes sense that yeah, you have to be to that be careful. Of. Which I, I guess for those of you listening is, is probably something new. If you have a family member who is special needs, you may not be aware of that, that you could potentially be putting your siblings your extended family, someone at financial peril by including them. So if you want to include that person, as Minotti is saying, talk to the parents first or talk to the financial planner first about how what's the best way to do it. Correct. Do we know what percentage of relatives leave inheritance, for example, to children with special needs and it sabotages their financial plan? They don't leave it to the special needs trust, then it would be fine. But inadvertently, I don't see that often. I used to see that more often in the past. But now a lot of people are more aware of all of this. But every once in a while it happens. I would say every year, maybe I would hear two or three cases. And sometimes we find out before actually it does happen so that we can prevent it. Because somebody may have found out, oh my gosh, my mother's trust says that it goes to my child. And now that I'm doing my planning, Thank God I looked at my mother's will and trust. I can fix it. But uh, sometimes it happens after the fact because this is another unique thing that a lot of the older parents or even some of the, like your parents, they are so private about their affairs that they don't discuss it with their adult children as to what their legal documents are. Those are the people that I worry about because everybody thinks their money is their business and they are not going to share it with their children who have the special needs child. And as a result, they never communicate and they never find out and mistakes are made and people are put in jeopardy. 
That makes a lot of sense. And that's why we talk about nothing but money on this show. <laughs> so I want to tack a little bit here. Uh, I think that there is, all, you know, we often hear this, uh, the example of the parents should put the, the oxygen mask on themselves before they help, you know, the child that's sitting next to them in a, in a plane that needs, uh, that's at risk. <laughs> the same thing I think would probably apply with retirement planning for a parent. They can't, how do they balance um, saving for their retirement? The, the possibility that they're not going to work after 65 or 70 years old, but still run the risk of living to be 100 or, or even more as medications and medicine gets better and also take care of their child with special needs. You're absolutely right. We always say that if you're not taken care of, you cannot extend the care to the next generation. At the same time, you also tell them that when you recognize that your needs are so great and it's humanly not possible for you to do it all because, you know, we have clients who have more than one child with disability. I'll give you an example of another family who have adopted children with disability. But in general, people are retiring for not just husband and wife or a couple and their special needs child. When they have more than one, you're retiring for three people if you have one child with disability, but four or five if you have two or three special needs children. And some parents are resigned to the fact that we are doing the best we can. We cannot bend backwards any more than what we are doing. So I always tell them, as long as you do the right thing, and even if it's a smaller plan, as long as it's done correctly and solid, then you have to accept the fact that you have done the very best you can and cannot worry about it. But what bothers me is people who can do it the correct way and not do it. They don't do it the way it should be done. So it's a combination of the parent's own resources, ability, and the parent's willingness to walk that extra mile to do the right thing. So we are finding way too many people working longer than the age 62, 65, up to 70, just so that they can provide for their family, including their special needs child. Yeah, that uh, it does make sense, although I, I can imagine that parent of a special needs child, no matter what their financial situation is, probably always going to have a little bit of worry or maybe feel a little inadequate um, because they don't know what the future holds for their child. So right. I think that what you're saying here may be of emotional value to those of you who are listening that have a special needs child to remember that you are doing the best you can and we have to be thankful for that. Correct. So if you can provide one or two pieces of advice to an LGBTQ couple, same-sex couple, considering adopting a child with special needs, for example, what one or two pieces of advice would that be? First of all, adopting a child to fulfill your life is a wonderful thing. If the child has special needs, then that makes you extraordinary parents. Whether you discover the child has disability after you have adopted, then you're still embracing the child and are willing to love the child irrespective of what the disability is, that makes you a big-hearted, very special parent. But you are an extraordinary person if you're adopting a child knowing that that child has special needs because then you're committed for the rest of your life and the child's life as long as you are alive to love and care for their child. It requires mental preparation and from day one, doing your legal and financial planning so that you are taken care of and the child is taken care of, but also getting involved in the special needs community to the organizations that provides advocacy, to know what are the different entities 
or special needs organizations are out there to keep yourself always informed. Be involved in the school for the education that the special education department provides. Know the rights of your special needs child. Know the extent of the disability. Learn about it, but be together with the other parents. But also learn to let go the child when the time is right. You become the parent sometimes that believes that nobody can love and care for your child the way you do, which is probably true. But you let your other children go to college, hoping that they are going to be completely emancipated. But the reason you want to let your child go and start to live independent of you is because if you don't do that, then when you are no longer here, it's really traumatic for the child to lose a parent and lose the familiar surrounding. So everything has the right time to do, planning that you need to start doing early on and monitor that as you go along. But also when the child leaves school, you need to find out before the child leaves school what the child is going to do on a daily basis. Sit at home and watch TV or be occupied several hours in a day of some meaningful work. It may not be available Your job is to always knock on the door and make sure that you find what is appropriate and necessary for your child. And then the financial and legal planning is ongoing. Who is going to step in your shoes when you're no longer here? Document everything that you know about your child in what we call a letter of intent, a most important non-legal document to note down everything that you know about your child, the academics, the allergies, the medications, the dental work, the abilities and inabilities, the quirks, the the food allergies, favorite siblings or relative, everything that you know, because someday somebody's going to step in your shoes and, and they have to know what you know about your child. And yes, nobody is going to care the way you do, but you have to accept that you're not going to be here forever. And somebody is going to do their job when they step in. And I would urge your readers to read my book, Beyond a Parent's Love, and they can get it through Amazon. And there is a story, uh, a real life story about a family, husband and wife, both are special education teachers. They always had it in their mind that because they know the special needs population so well, they will have their own kids but they will also want to adopt the special needs children, maybe one or two. But when they found out they couldn't have children, their plans changed. They have four adopted children today. Three of them are severely disabled. And you will be amazed how you find the love that you can give. And they have done all their planning. It's an ongoing thing. They think about a future where they can all be together in a New Mexico, in a farm, where they can get old themselves and still have the children there and be taken care of. So there is plenty of opportunities to do. You have to seek out. It's not an easy path, but it can be done, and it's an ongoing journey. Wonderful. I love all that. Thank you so much. So in addition to your book, where else can our listeners find out more about you and secure planning strategies? Yeah, so they can go on my website. They can, first of all, Google me and find out everything about me, including my website, www.spsfinancial.com. And then they can uh, go on Amazon and find out through the title, Beyond a Parent's Love. 
that was published in um, September. This is uh, not just about how to do planning, but these are real life stories of several families about their challenges, trials and tribulations, and triumph in raising their child with special needs. And there are different kinds of disabilities in each of the stories. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yep. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate having you. Yeah. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. Wow. What a wealth of information. Thank you so much, Minoti, for sharing your experience and wisdom with us and our listeners. Finally, to our listeners, this episode of Queer Money was brought to you by the Debt-Free Guys credit card payoff course, which is only available for a short time starting Sunday, May 12th, 2019. The credit card payoff course will help you pay off all of your credit card debt faster than you ever thought possible. Most members have saved and paid off thousands of dollars in just the first few months. You will not want to miss this. So in the meantime, go to debtfreeguys.com forward slash debtfree2019 for more information. We'll talk with you next week.